Good morning, and we welcome you to Bible class here as we continue our study of Colossians. And we welcome those who are listening on KFUO. We are now at uh, Colossians 1, chapter 15. 1, chapter 15. Huh? Verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. And so this section begins the true theological discussion of who Christ is. And it's very exalted in its words. As we talked about last week, some of the most exalted language used about Christ in the New Testament. And it's going to re explain Christ's relationship to both the creation and his acts as Savior, reconciliation that he has uh, won for us. So the first verse, 15, is just jam-packed. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. All right. The word image always reminds us that Adam was created in the image of God. And this image, Jesus Christ, is God. Now, we're going to talk about that a lot with this verse. Because there were those that said he wasn't. And the early church, there was a heretic called Arius. And Arius wanted to say, did say, that Jesus Christ was not God. And he went so far to say he was a created being. Now, the image of the invisible God immediately points us to the words that we confess in the Nicene Creed of one substance with the Father. That was a very important phrase at the writing of the Nicene Creed because Arius and his group wanted it to say, like the Father, not one substance, not the same substance, different substance, that he was a created being. And so it was a tremendous debate. And the one that wrote most about it was Athanasius. Athanasius was the defender of the orthodox position that he, Jesus Christ, is true God. So when it says the image of the invisible God, Christianity has also always maintained it is the image of God because Jesus Christ is God. 
He is not of similar substance. He is the same substance as the Father. But it also points us to to that which was that Adam was made in the image of God. And that Jesus Christ is many times called the second Adam or the last Adam. And so we want to to think about this a minute. Adam was made in the image of God. Adam wanted to be like God. That was the temptation. You will be like God. Adam was disobedient. Adam's goal was to be exalted like God. And finally, Adam lost the image of God in his sin. Now, what is the image of God? It does not mean we look like God. It is being in perfect holiness and righteousness. And that's what Adam was originally. But Adam lost that image completely when he sinned. Now let's think about the second Adam. He was not made in the image of God. He is the image of God. He did not want to be God. The verse in Philippians says, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Adam was disobedient, but Jesus Christ was obedient. Adam sought exaltation, but Jesus Christ, humiliation. Adam lost the image of God. Jesus Christ restored the image of God. You see how they differ? Adam didn't do what he was supposed to. So Christ came at the, as the second Adam and fixed it. That's basically what happened. That's basically what happened. So this image of God is packed with meaning. And then he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The best translation would be the firstborn of every creature. Of every creature. Now, what does it mean that he's the firstborn of every creature? It simply is pointing to the fact that he is the creator of all things. And it's going to say that in the next verse. That he is the creator of all things. Arius would say, the firstborn of all creation, every creature, he was the first thing God created. The first thing God created. Remember, he's not the same substance as the Father. The first thing God created was Jesus Christ. 
And so that's why the early church was so adamant that this means he created all things. Okay? He created all things. And that's what verse 16 says. For by him all things were created. So, Christ's relationship to the creation is, it was created by him, through him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. John 1, 3. Okay? So his relationship to the creation is, it's all his. It's all his. And he is the one by whom it came into existence. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That's the phrase that is quoted in the Nicene Creed. We confessed it this morning. Visible and invisible. Now, we know what the visible is. What is the invisible? Well, just think about it. First thing that comes to mind is angels. Okay? But there are other things that need to come to mind, too. Is the wind visible? You see, there are other things within the creation that are not visible. So everything visible and invisible. And then it gets specific. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What are thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities? The first thing that comes to mind is the ranks of angels, which we know very little about. We know very little about. But there's more than that. These things are referring to everything that God created that exercises authority and power. And that may, it does include things like government, marriage, family. You see, God created these things so that the creation would work. Now, here's the problem, however. Many of these things are subject <coughs> to sin through sinful corruption when Adam fell. So is government prone to be corrupted by sin? Yes. Can marriage be? Yes. Can the family be? Yes. But God still uses them within the created order to keep some semblance of peace. 
Now, there are good angels that have been confirmed in their good, and there are evil angels confirmed in their evil, but there are also these human institutions that we see in this world that have been instituted, created by God for the order of the creation, and they too can be corrupted. You see, the whole creation has been corrupted by sin. Romans chapter 8 says that. We looked at that when we were there. So the whole thing is corrupted. And that includes thrones and dominions and rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. They were created through him at the beginning for good. But some of them sin has corrupted. But notice it says they were created through him and for him. That's two loaded words. Because what is it implying? It is implying they were created for him to redeem. They were created for him with the view that he would restore everything to its former created being. That's what it's implying. For him, for the purpose of redeeming the whole mess. Okay? Redeeming the whole mess. And that's, that's hard to get our minds around. It is really like saying that God created the world perfect and wanted it to be that way, but he knew we were going to mess it up. So from the outset, he created a plan to restore it. Okay? So it is for Jesus Christ to restore. God didn't make it go bad so he could restore it just for something to do. It went bad by the corruption of human beings. And then God restored it. But it was created for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together or exist. Okay? So his, he is before all things. This is testifying to his, that he is eternal. Before anything was created, he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. In other words, this is the providential care of God in that nothing would exist or work without him. This creation would not be able to exist without him. Okay? Without him. Now, this totally goes against many of the thoughts that the founding fathers of this country had and they were called deists. 
and deists believe that God created the world and wound it up like a clock. And God stepped back and doesn't do anything and doesn't intervene anymore. He just lets the clock run till it runs out. Jesus Christ is the thing that says deism is wrong because it is God intervening in history. God is not sitting back. He comes and becomes man and the Savior. And this passage is saying not only does he become the Savior, everything is dependent on him. Everything holds together and exists because of him. So this is Christ's relationship to the creation. It's all his. And it would not exist without him. It would not continue without him. It exists for him. Okay. So we always had these notions that the Father created everything and the Son redeemed us and the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Well, it's much broader than that. And here it testifies to that that the Son, all things were created through him and for him. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now, this is a different relationship than he has with the universe. Because a head is connected to the body. Never does it say he's the head of the universe. He is the head of the body because there is a relationship that's been created in baptism. That in baptism, we died with him and we rise with him and we are united with him. So his relationship with the universe is different than his relationship with the church because we're dealing with a personal relationship. Therefore, he is the head of the flock, and we are related to him as parts and members of the body through holy baptism, okay, through holy baptism. So a more personal relationship with the Savior than just being a created universe for being. Okay? He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, he's the beginning. Okay? And he's the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn of the dead, the one to rise from the dead. Okay? The one who rose from the dead and conquered death 
once and for all for us. And therefore, he is preeminent. In other words, he is everything. He is the creator. He is the one through whom all things hold together. He's the head of the church. And he is the one who has conquered death, the greatest enemy of man. Therefore, he is preeminent. That is, he is first. He is first. Okay. And see, this kind of description we don't have elsewhere in the New Testament. Now, there are passages here and there, but all of this together in these verses is significant. Now, then we come to a line that is directed against the Colossian heresy. It would be one against Gnosticism. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, the verse in Greek actually says, and in him, all the fullness was pleased to dwell. But the context demands that it's God. You see, the Gnostics said he wasn't God. The Gnostics would agree with Arius that he was a created being, an emanation from God. This verse says, goes back to verse 15, when he was called the image of God. This verse says unequivocally, the fullness of God dwells in him. He is God. And therefore, Gnosticism, therefore the Colossian heresy, is wrong. He is true God. The fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. He is both true God and true man. True God. Okay? All of God is in Jesus Christ. All of God was in that little baby born in Bethlehem. How do you get all of God in a baby? Well, you can ask him someday. Okay? Get all the power of God in a baby. And that's the miraculous truly the miraculous worked by God. All right, so we have his relationship to the universe, to all created things, his relationship to the church. He is true God, and now his work as Savior is added. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things. All right. Remember we said when sin came, it corrupted the entire creation. 
So he's going to reconcile everything. He's going to restore everything. Now, we don't see that fully done yet. We will when he comes again. But it's been won. It's been done. It's been done. So we're reconciled all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The means that he did this was the blood that he shed on the cross of Calvary. So the reconciliation came to being because he was willing to be sacrificed on a cross and shed his blood to reconcile the world. So in these five verses, we have Jesus Christ, his person and work described for us. That he created the world, through it it exists and functions. He's the head of the church. He is true God, and he has reconciled all things to himself by the blood of the cross. In five verses. Go ahead. This is verse 20 when it says we have to reconcile to himself. That's right. Wrong well, statement of his God, him being God. That's right. It's to himself, it says there. Notice it to himself. That speaks that he's God. Because that's who the creation needs to, to be reconciled to. Because we were enemies of God. Reconciliation implies making peace between two enemies. That's what the word means, making peace between two enemies. So Jesus Christ made peace between God and us because we were enemies of God. So to himself, he was recon reconciling the creation to himself. Because he's true God. Because he's true God. By the blood of the cross, yes. Well, it's part of creation. Therefore, you have to say moon, stars, sun, all of the universe. Don't limit yourself to just what's around God in heaven. It's all things. It's the whole creation. The whole creation is reconciled. Yes. Right. And that's what we teach. He became flesh and dwelt among us on earth, not on other planets. We are. Right. Right. Yes, we have never taught that he did this elsewhere. Okay. Right. Right. It's all speculation. All right. So this is what Christ has done for us. Described in very exalted language, making it clear that he's just above everything. Everything. And now Paul applies it to us. And you, 
who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's what we were before our baptism. That's what we were before faith in Christ. Alienated and hostile. We still can be that way. We still can do evil deeds, but then what does he say? He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So it's a reiterating again what the last verses said, talking about reconciliation. Again, this making peace between two enemies. Two enemies. Those who were alienated and hostile now receive forgiveness of sins and life everlasting because of Jesus Christ. We've been reconciled to God. We are no longer enemies of God. We are friends of God. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other words, he has restored creation. And at the last day, you're going to be presented as blameless and holy and above reproach because of what the reconciliation, because of the reconciliation that he did for you. That he did it. And, and you're going to come before him. Okay? Come because he's God. Because he's God. It's another statement, strong statement, that he's God. If he was only a created being, would you be presented holy and blameless before him? Who cares? He's not God. This reiterates that he is God. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. In other words, the only thing that keeps you founded, firm, stable in the faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ you have heard. And the more you hear it, the stronger your faith can be. Okay? But notice, he's very specific here. What is the means? What makes it possible for us to be founded, firm, and stable? The gospel of Jesus Christ that we have heard and the more we hear it, the better. Been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He was appointed to proclaim this gospel. And that's what he has been about. Now... Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is, the church, 
This is a very, very difficult passage. Very difficult. Now, let's say what we know about it. Do you see where it says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? The word here, it's flipsis. It is a Greek word that is used specifically for the trials and tribulations of Christians. It is never used of the suffering and passion of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, on first reading of this verse, you would think what it is saying is that Christ's sufferings that earned our forgiveness are lacking. No, that's not what it's saying because they're not lacking. If they were lacking, God would not have accepted his sacrifice and raised him from the dead. Further, this is where the biblical languages are important. Since Christ's afflictions are never used of his suffering on the cross, it's referring to another kind of suffering. Now, there are two options. And the first one is easier than the second one. The first one is, the verse is simply saying, there is so much suffering among Christians that has to happen before Christ comes again. And Paul is contributing to the bank. <laughs> okay? Paul is contributing to the bank. We don't think that's that important. So what I'm going to describe to you is what we think he's saying. Now let's read the whole thing. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I am a minister, became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So gird up your loins, and here it is. We believe what Paul is saying is this. I am suffering because I have been appointed to preach the gospel to you. But since you are having doubts, and you are not proclaiming the gospel as you should, you're not suffering. Therefore, I'm suffering for you. That's hard. That's hard. It stays within what the text means. 
the emphasis stays on Christ. It does not spill into false doctrine, which is Christ didn't do everything he should have. And Paul is being a steward by proclaiming the gospel and suffering for it, even though his hearers are not. That's the best we can do. Yes. The reference by the body of his flesh is the means by which he did this. But the body of the church are all members who believe in Christ. So that's the best we can do. Yes. The lack of suffering in the church because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. He's making up the suffering by being a faithful steward of Christ. It's Christ's afflictions. That's right. All right. 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What is the mystery? Well, he uses the term mystery in a lot of his letters. In some cases, in most cases, the mystery refers to the fact that God has included the Gentiles in his plan of salvation and that he revealed that in the Old Testament, but now it has been fully known that the Gentiles are included. Okay. Because the mystery was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. In this case, there are some that also think this mystery is the fact that Jesus Christ is true God. And that was hidden for ages and has only now become apparent through his person and work. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, see, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery that the Gentiles have come to realize is Jesus Christ is in you. He is God and the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Okay? That he powerfully works within me. So I am fulfilling what I was called to do. I am preaching the gospel, and with that, all kinds of suffering and persecution that I am going through for you, for the body of Christ, and revealing this great gospel to the people that have not heard it.
That's what I was called to do. That's what I am doing. And if there is suffering involved with it, then I will suffer the consequences. So that Christ is proclaimed. And everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Okay? Growing up in Christ. All right. I, I would paint the word restored as more the restoration of relationship with God. Okay. Relationship with God. But even though the the old is destroyed, there is a new heaven, new earth, which is basically the church. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the, the phrase firstborn from the dead is he's the only one to ever come back from the dead, conquer it himself. So it's not to the dead because he had to do it for the dead. So he comes back from the dead. Okay. From the dead. Paul was inspired to write it, so we have to figure it out. But the fact is, there are passages in Scripture that we can work and work and work on and never figure out. But the one thing we know is, because of the use of certain words, it's not referring to Christ's suffering on the cross. There's got to be another explanation. Paul has to suffer a it was shown what he would have to suffer. So Paul has to suffer a lot. We know that. But how that all fits together, not easy. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's what you can get out of that. If you're not suffering, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Well, that's not necessarily the case, Okay. That's not necessarily the case. We don't have to walk around in suffering at all times because we're Christians. So it just points to the difficulty of this passage. The difficulty of this passage, yes. Arius would have lived in the same uh, time period that the Athanasian Creed was written, and that was 326 A.D. Okay. And that's when Athanasius was living. Okay. Uh, yeah. But the creed came out, and uh, the council was years. But the creed came out, and that's the confusing thing. The Nicene Creed was written by Athanasius, but the Athanasian Creed was not written by Athanasius. Okay. All right. Difficult passages. Yeah, Mark, one more. I think it's the same kind of suffering. It is affliction. It is tribulation. It is trial. Yes, I would do that, especially when you're trying to convey to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're not listening, and they're not putting it, making it a part of their lives. That is the suffering of the office of mom and dad and a pastor. Okay, It is, no doubt about it. All right, we'll continue with chapter 2 next week, and there is more uh, description about Christ in chapter 2 also.
So we will continue that. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.